This podcast is brought to you by the Empower Her program, a 12-week gut and hormone restoration program. If you are suffering from chronic digestive and menstrual cycle issues, this may be the program for you. Go to www.sophieandkyleen.com forward slash empower her to join the waitlist. Welcome to the She Talks Health Podcast, your source for information about all things women's hormonal health. I'm your host, Sophie Shepard. I'm the founder of She Talks Health and the co-creator of the 12-week Empower Her group gut and hormone program. I'm a certified functional health coach and a holistic menstrual health educator. This podcast was created to give you clarity about how to take control over your hormonal health using safer, natural options. I created this podcast to cover the widespread and complex health issues plaguing women today. From the rise of infertility to the epidemically high numbers of women with autoimmune disease to menstrual cycle problems, digestive issues, anxiety, weight gain, food sensitivities, mental, emotional, and energetic imbalances, and so much more. If there's a topic that you need answered, I encourage you to write us at podcast at shetalkshealth.com and we will try our absolute best to cover that subject. My greatest mission in life is to help women radically change their health and their lives by teaching them how they can use their hormones as their superpowers. So with that in mind, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome back, ladies, to the She Talks Health Podcast. This is your host, Sophie Shepard, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and women's menstrual and gut health coach. I am super, super excited for today's episode because I am getting a chance to interview Phoebe Lapine, who is a food and health writer. She's a gluten-free chef, speaker, and the voice behind the award-winning blog, Feed Me Phoebe. It's so cute. Um, She's also been named by Women's Health Magazine as a top nutrition read of 2017. She has a memoir called The Wellness Project, which chronicles her journey through the autoimmune disease Hashimoto's thyroiditis, one that you guys should know very thoroughly by now because of my own journey with Hashis. And most importantly for this interview, she's also the host of the SIBO Made Simple podcast and the author of a book with the same name. And today we are going to be talking all about SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We're going to cover what it is, where it comes from, and what are some of the things that Phoebe has researched that help women who are dealing with SIBO. So Phoebe, welcome to the She Talks Health podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's so funny. We have such a similar health background or have been on similar journeys. It is. I know. We both have Hashimoto's and I... Yeah, I definitely dealt with SIBO in there probably for longer than I even knew. And I think it's just, as you've written about, it's it's so common to have both. Um, I would love to hear a little bit of your own either health story or if that's how you got into <laughs> the rabbit hole that is SIBO. Uh, we'd love to hear about it. Yeah. So I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's when I was 22. So that's a long time ago now. Get out. Me too. Really? Yes. I think it's really common. Yeah. It's like the turning point. Also, it's like a lot of us have been on like birth control for a long time and just had maybe, you know, not the healthiest experience in college. I know I didn't. (laughs) It was like the perfect storm. Um, Same. I always say that. I always say that. I was just writing about birth control and, and Hashi's recently. This is so, okay. So you're 22 and you got diagnosed. Yeah. And I feel really fortunate, you know, I was like by my regular childhood doctor um, who wasn't particularly holistic, um, but, you know, I was grateful that she did like pretty thorough testing and um, she, you know, was just like, it's no big deal. Here's like a medication. You'll just have to be on it for the rest of your life. And I was, you know, super mature at the time. So I was just like, okay, thanks, but no thanks. I'll just go on living my life. Bye. Um, (laughs) Because I didn't really have any symptoms that I could pinpoint. It wasn't really explained to me that I was an autoimmune disease. It wasn't even really explained to me like what the thyroid did. And like, truly, I was like freaked out by the whole thing. So I just was like, la, 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 and went on living my life. Um, 
And, but then, you know, in the years that followed, I quit my corporate job. I was trying to make it in the food world and was just like wearing myself down um, until I hit like, you know, some sort of rock bottom. Um, I was living in New York City, you know, trying to work a lot of odd food jobs and catering, private chefing were both very physical jobs and even more physical in New York where you have to like kind of schlep everything all over the place on your own and you live in a walk up and all of that. Oh, I um, understand. I lived, I live in New York too. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. So I was pretty exhausted at a certain point, um, a few years in and, you know, I was doubled over and pain pretty much every time I ate and I had to stop running because of all the cramps I would get when I would try and go like even half a block and my skin was a mess which was probably you know the thing that <laughs> got my attention the most um I was like having terrible night sweats every night like plus insomnia but was tired all the time you know the the perfect mix of Hashimoto stuff yeah um, lovely symptoms that we get to deal with <laughs> yeah but then the kind of you know I, I, so the pendulum started to swing from like denial to getting more into like the holistic side of things and seeing a functional medicine doctor. But then it was like the pendulum like swung too far in the other direction. And I just felt super overwhelmed and frustrated. And like, how does someone in the real world actually like do all of these things while like on a limited budget and like living in a shoebox and like working all the time? Um, which is what led me to write my book, The Wellness Project, which is based on a real life experiment I did for a year of my life, um, where I just kind of made a to-do list of all of my issues and kind of tackled them one month at a time with just, you know, a few small changes that didn't require, you know, too much investment. It was like a lot of the common sense stuff. Um, but I really just like kind of wanted to see what moved the needle and what was worth my time, money and energy. And, you know, the experiment really worked. I was, my blood work was so much better by the end of the year. Cause like, I mean, before it wasn't just that my thyroid numbers were off. I was like, super malnourished like I was not absorbing like any nutrients because my gut was such a mess um so in this project of course gut health was you know one thing I was paying attention to was a month of my concentration and I thought I had really done a lot of research and I like knew what the microbiome specialist specialist you know said to do and you know was feeling so much better and so then you know, a book process is like a three year long process. So, um, my book didn't come out until like several years after and, um, like seven months after it came out and I was like, it was a very stressful time with a lot of travel and, you know, not a lot of consistency in the self-care department, even if I had kind of my toolkit built from, <laughs> from doing the wellness project. Um, but I started to notice, you know, like some IBS symptoms creeping back into my life. And I just doubled down on what I thought I was supposed to be doing. I just started, you know, drinking more kombucha and eating more fermented foods and eating legumes. And I was just making myself more and more miserable um, without even realizing what I was doing. And eventually I went back to the doctor and he immediately did a SIBO test and it came back positive. Um, and that was, you know, it wasn't the first time I'd heard of SIBO, but I certainly didn't know much about it. I hadn't really come across it mentioned much by like these mainstream microbiome specialists that I had interviewed for the last book. And so I just fell down the internet rabbit hole after that. And it was all very confusing. I mean, I thought like stuff with Hashis was complicated and confusing, but the SIBO options were just really, really complicated. And there were a lot of contradictions and it was kind of hard to know where to start. I mean, I was lucky to work with a practitioner who told me exactly where to start. Um, but, you know, there was so much ancillary questions about diet diet and lifestyle and all that. Um, so I ended up just putting together, you know, a few posts for my website and it was just shocking. They took off and such so quickly. Um, it turns out my audience, I guess, already had SIBO. I just didn't know it. <laughs> you relate to the party. <laughs> yeah. And so I started the podcast then just so I could have conversations with, you know, all these practitioners on the forefront since so much is kind of still unknown on the research front, even though yeah. more and more is coming out every every year. Um, and yeah, it was supposed to be a 12-episode podcast. Um 50 episodes later, I'm finally done. But um, I really, it was just such an interesting nexus of all these different issues and conditions and diseases. Um, 
I don't know. I feel like I, I joke in the introduction of the book that I got this like master's degree in small intestinal studies, but I truly do understand my digestion in such a more concrete way than I did even from all my research prior. Wow. What an incredible story, Phoebe, and actually very similar it, it, weirdly similar because I feel the same way. I was like, oh man, this Hashimoto's things is really confusing. And for me, it was totally foundation of gut issues. I mean, I probably had SIBO the whole time and didn't know oh, wow. it. Um, and I healed my gut the first time and I used like autoimmune um, protocol and some supplements mm-hmm. and, and like stress reduction and all the lifestyle things that I'm sure yes. <laughs> you did that you outline in your wellness project. Um, and, and I healed. I mean, I healed fast, like three months and I was really com- completely completely reversed. And then, um, but like you, I kind of went back to regular life and was like, Oh, okay. Well, I checked that, you know, health thing off my yeah. <laughs> list. And, um, I went back to, you know, my really stressful job and I went back to being in New York city and drinking and all the things. And, um, and then at some point I had, I'd kind of gotten, back on the health track because I went to IIN, um, Institute for Integrative Nutrition, and then I decided to quit my job and start a health coaching company. (laughs) And incidentally, at the same time, I decided to come off my antidepressant that I had been on since I was, since I had developed all my autoimmune issues. And the confluence of that stress just completely toppled me again. And I ended up developing SIBO. (laughs) Uh. And it was like, I had the same reaction you did, which was like, wait a second. I thought I really understood what I was doing when it came to gut health and thyroid health. And now I have this other thing called SIBO and it doesn't seem like there's really a great direction to go in. And, and anyways, so I, I, I can really um, empathize and relate um, to your journey because it was just so similar <laughs> to mine. So Phoebe, you had this podcast that has 50 episodes with all things SIBO. Can we start from the beginning, <laughs> which is if someone's listening to this, they might have been scared into thinking they have SIBO. They might have been diagnosed with SIBO, but they don't understand what it is. Can we just start from like what yes. is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? And then let's talk about where it can come from because I know there's a lot of root causes. Oh, yeah. So it's really not a disease. It's kind of a a sign that something has gone wrong in the digestive tract because, you know, gut health is really kind of watered down and um, there's a lot of vernacular that's thrown around in the wellness world. Um, So people might not even understand that when people refer to kind of your good gut bacteria, for the most part, they're really talking about what's in your large intestine. Um, Every area of the body, especially every area of the digestive tract kind of has its own microbiome, but the most robust where, you know, the most microbes exist is in your large intestine because it's where they have a role. It's where they're helping to kind of break down debris that is not actually, you know, fueling you from a nutrition standpoint, um, but has a role in like feeding these healthy um, helpers of sorts, um, which have a whole host of roles in your immune system and just so many different things in the body, your metabolism. Um, so the small intestine is where you do absorb your nutrients. So that is where um, all of those essential pieces get absorbed into the bloodstream through the intestinal wall. So if there are bacteria there, they're literally competing for your dinner. So there may be, you know, there is of course some bacteria, but it's pretty low and um, it's, once you do kind of have some sort of traffic jam or overgrowth, um, most people will notice the effects of that in the form of like really intense IBS symptoms. So um, most notably the bloating, because as these critters eat your food, they release gas. And that gas, now that it's so far from an exit ramp, can just become trapped. Um, One of my unpleasant SIBO symptoms, which was why I like started to pay attention, was I was just burping all the time. So of course, they can find other ways out as well. Um, But I'd say, you know, kind of that intense bloating um, that really occurs 
consistently when you eat, not just, you know, every couple days, every now and then, that's kind of the hallmark symptom of SIBO. But then the gas itself can be really inflammatory and the bacteria themselves can cause a lot of damage. So they can actually contribute to leaky gut or intestinal permeability by literally like chewing through the mucus lining of your small intestine. And then you're kind of in, in a world of trouble because, um, then there can be this kind of spectrum of autoimmune issues that can stem from that. If, you know, small pieces of food or small pieces of the bacteria themselves after, you know, uh, tussling with your immune system start to, you know, pass that barrier into the bloodstream. Um, so there is a long list of kind of SIBO symptoms that go beyond just the hallmarks of IBS, which are bloating, gas, and diarrhea or constipation or, cons- or a combination of the two or all of the above. Um, and, you know, those are kind of really insidious symptoms that come off the back of that. So food sensitivities, you know, a lot of hashi stuff like brain fog, uh, joint pain, depending on, you know, how you feel your inflammation and where it manifests. Um, And then of course, you know, your mood is very much controlled by your gut. So anxiety, depression are really, are really common. And then weight loss or weight gain kind of depending on what types of critters are overgrowing um, can happen. And yeah, it's a really, it's, it's a tough condition because as I kind of teased before, um, kind of the solution goes against a lot of what we think of as good gut practices, but it's because Mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have bad gut critters. They're just in the wrong place. So most people do require like at least one period of like a kill phase or an eradication to just get rid of the acute overgrowth. That was like the most succinct (laughs) yet comprehensive explanation of SIBO I think I've ever heard. That was fantastic. So just to summarize, basically what we're talking about is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO happens when the bacteria that's supposed to be in the large intestine migrates to the small intestine. And that can cause a lot of the symptoms you would think of as IBS, like bloating and gas, but also all these other things that people try to spot treat, right? Like brain fog and mood and joint pain and even weight loss or weight gain. I know for me, it was, it was rapid weight loss actually. Yeah. It wasn't absorbing. Yeah. And that's scary. I mean, these are scary symptoms. And so we, we can definitely, I mean, I know I definitely freaked out and I went, you know, to my functional medicine doctor who had originally helped me with my Hashimoto's and my leaky gut and everything. And then he actually referred me to a gastroenterologist for a SIBO breath test, which I know you mentioned earlier. Um, and so let's maybe let's talk about, um, let's talk about what could be causing this misplacement of the small intestinal bacteria or the bacteria getting into the small intestine. And then let's talk about what are some solutions people can think through when they're trying to go about SIBO. So we know there's a lot of causes, right? Do you want to start maybe going through some things that could contribute to SIBO? Yeah. So there are three main buckets. Um, yeah, I know you mentioned a migration from the large intestine to the small. That's actually really only in a small set of cases. Um, we have this back door between the small intestine and the large intestine called the ileocecal valve. Um, but certainly some sort of dysfunction with that back door could be you know, an obvious reason for SIBO. And that would kind of fall into the structural category. So, you know, there are, you know, more traditional kinks or blockages or, you know, something happening with the small intestine themselves that um, may cause a traffic jam, or it could be something kind of as subtle as having a laparoscopic surgery. Um, That's actually a big contributor to SIBO from the structural standpoint. So you get these surgeries, and even if they're done by a really good surgeon, often, you know, your internal scar tissue kind of forms and it can kind of cling to your organs and cause them to kind of not move as freely as they once did. And even if there's, you know, very little evidence on the outside, um, if you haven't worked with someone on body work or visceral manipulation, which is kind of a specific type of body work that does really subtle, um, work with your organs, you may not even know. Um, so I would say, you know, a lot of women, fall into that category without knowing it because, you know, let's think about some laparoscopic surgeries. 
endometriosis would be a big one. Um, C-section would be another big one. I mean, one in three women these days are getting a C-section. That's insane. So that's a lot of women, you know, with this potential root cause um, for SIBO. Also, a lot of women get their gallbladders removed, unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, hysterectomies. Um, and then, of course, you know, any bariatric surgery is not necessarily gender specific. Um Sure. And even just the, what you said about the gallbladder, even if it wasn't a structural issue, just the, the mere fact that yeah. our gallbladder is there to help us with our bile flow and that bile mm-hmm. is one of the best ways we can get um, our bacteria out of our body and, and kind of cleansing. So that's like a double whammy, I feel yes. like. That one and endometriosis kind of like spans multiple buckets, um, as does Hashimoto's. But um, endometriosis also, because you have masses growing outside of your ovaries and, you know, another potential root cause of SIBO, like any sort of tumor that's growing, even if it's benign, like anything that's causing kind of constriction or, you know, any sort of weight on your intestines. I would like, frankly, put tight, high-waisted jeans in that category too. (laughs) It's not going to be the acute cause of your SIBO, but we'll, we'll list it among some of these structural You heard it here from Phoebe. So wear the tight pants. (laughs) (laughs) The studies haven't come back on that one yet. Um, But seriously, like your small intestine is not properly named. It is super long and winding and the surface area of a football field. Um, So if you think about it, something pressing down can cause kind of like a four-lane highway to go into a two-lane highway. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe on its own, that's not enough to cause SIBO, but often people have several root causes. So let's get into one of the other categories. So usually it's not a backward migration. It's bacteria coming in naturally every single day through the nose and mouth. And then we have all of these antimicrobial substances that we naturally (laughs) have on hand in our body to deal with those things. So stomach acid would be, you know, the first leg of that labyrinth and low stomach acid is a huge underlying risk factor for SIBO. A lot of women are deficient. Um, And then, yeah, the bile acids from your gallbladder, pancreatic enzymes, those are all essential substances in the small intestine that might also help neutralize something that you would that, you know, you don't want to take hold as an opportunist. And then, you know, your immune system is also there to make sure that again, like a pathogen doesn't really take hold in the body. Um, So there's a lot of things in that category um, that could cause issues, you know, being on immunosuppressants is even one. Um, and then the second bucket, or I guess we're on the third bucket now, I, I, miss, I order them differently normally when well, I do this chat. Before we but... move on to the third bucket, I just, I really want to hear I, what you just said about the stomach acid and the enzymes is really important. And I see this so much in my practice. I run a GI maps and we'll see H. pylori, which we know is a massive um, reason that our stomach acid is low. And so we have these multi-pronged kind of things we have going on here. And people, I think people think that stomach acid is a bad thing, right? Like, have you seen this in a lot of your conversations? Because they think, oh, it causes my acid reflux. But we know that low stomach acid contributes to us not digesting our food and then that acid reflux coming back up. But it's also this this barrier, right? For, you know, helping us to not only break down proteins and foods, but to help us to neutralize that bacteria, like you said. So, okay. So we have that and the enzyme. So then what would be your third category? Um, So the third category is this thing called the migrating motor complex. Um, We can call it more largely motility. So like the way food moves through the small intestine. Um, And, you know, as I mentioned, everyone kind of usually, not everyone, but a lot of people have, you know, feet in every single bucket. Because if you think about it, you know, again, if you have a structural issue that causes, you know, a four lane highway to go into a two lane highway, well, if the bacteria are getting killed properly before they get there, that shouldn't be a problem. Um, So I'd say like most people have something going on in the bucket of bacteria are not killed because otherwise how else would they overgrow? Um, So yeah, so then the motility bucket, um, has to do with this thing called the migrating motor complex. And that is essentially kind of the street sweeper wave of your small intestine that makes sure that all of those nooks and crannies um, throughout this really long winding canal um, get cleaned after a meal. So 
um, peristalsis is kind of like your muscular movement of food moving through your body. So it's kind of like part of the motility picture, but the street sweeper mechanism, the MMC is what cleans up after the meal. So it's like kind of the equivalent of doing the dishes and, you know, we eat, <laughs> several times a day. So if that's falling down on the job, there's just a lot of opportunity for this debris to kind of build up over time. And more importantly, for an opportunist like bacteria or fungi or yeast to kind of pull off the exit ramp and like set up a shanty town and stay a while. Um, <laughs> so there's like a lot, there are a lot of different overlapping conditions that can cause dysfunction with the migrating motor complex, Hashimoto's being one of them. Um, and a lot of autoimmune diseases that kind of like dovetail with some sort of gut dysfunction, celiac and IBD are, have really high rates of SIBO. Um, probably just because of like the damage that's done in the intestines that like will mess with your motility. Um, sure. And the damage to, I mean, if the damage of the microvilli where the IBD or celiacs is, is also where your digestive enzymes, for example, yeah. are being secreted, you could have a lot of problems. Exactly. And I, and I love what you said too about Hashimoto's because obviously we both have had Hashimoto's and I didn't understand that it wasn't just that I was tired and gaining weight, but that, you know, when I first, when I first got diagnosed with it, I just, I thought of all these symptoms separately, but really like thinking through that about how your whole metabolism is slowed down, including your migrating motor complex yeah. potentially and how that can lead to this kind of buildup of, um, like you said, <laughs> place where <laughs> the bacteria want to set up shop. I think that's a really interesting visual, but it's, it's very helpful to hear that because people might be like, well, let me try and like spot treat this bloating and not realize, well, they have Hashimoto's. So there's also this other things kind of yeah. connection there. And it doesn't like directly correlate to like, oh, good motility equals like, you know, or too good motility is diarrhea and like not good motility yeah. is constipation. Um, but I will say, you know, most people with Hashimoto's know that they're kind of more prone to constipation. And it's more just kind of like a general feeling of like stagnation, like our bodies are cold. Like, you know, there's just a lot, <laughs> there's not a lot of fire there um, to help keep things moving. Um, but no, more directly, it's, you know, when you don't have enough of the active um, thyroid hormone T3, then that's going to have a halo effect on your ability to have enough B12. And then B12 is what actually fuels the migrating motor complex. So I think a lot of people with Hashimoto's will probably be aware of being deficient in B12. Um, and it also makes you more prone to low stomach acid. So mm -hmm. I bring that up too, because, you know, if you have Hashis, that's also going to make you more prone to food poisoning. And food poisoning is one of the biggest kind of catalyzing events of SIBO. And what happens is it has something directly to do with the the motility bucket is when your immune system like really comes at it with their pitchforks for, you know, a pathogen that gets in there, they can sometimes through kind of a case of acute molecular mimicry and autoimmunity accidentally attack the nerve cells of the migrating motor complex. So a lot of people, you know, again, you have to set the stage for this. So these people who get food poisoning, unless it's from, you know, just really bad decision of eating like street meat in a third world country, um, most people, you know, already have low stomach acid or, you know, something else that's going to make that food poisoning event more of an issue. Um, but once that happens, you know, usually we're all feeling better like 24 to 48 hours after, but um, then it's when the kind of real damage sets in that migrating motor complex being stunted. And a lot of people don't always connect the dots because it's like a slow process over the course of weeks and maybe months of, you know, of the buildup. And then one day you wake up and you may be like, Whoa, like my gut is just like not the same. Um, and it because it's because you could have developed SIBO. That is so great that you went into the food poisoning thing because I honestly think that that could be one of my root causes. Oh yeah, me <laughs> like too. If I think if I think back, like I definitely drank the water in Tulum when I was twelve, <laughs> and I got so sick, and then my life was never the same. Um, but yeah, so it's that's so I'm so okay. So we just to summarize what we just went through was kind of the 
root causes of SIBO and that there are usually multiple factors of each. There's the structural kind of issues. So if there's a kink in the, in the system of the small intestine, that could, uh, like you said, I love that, um, turn a four lane highway into a two lane highway. That could be an issue. Um, we have the like enzyme stomach acid kind of functional digestive um, process that can be hindered for a variety of reasons. And also the migrating motor complex, which is going to be that street sweeper um, that's going to kind of push all the food out after you've done, um, after you're done eating it. So it doesn't sit there and allow a good opportunity for bacteria to sit here and (laughs) to grow and to eat. Um, And then we also talked about food poisoning being an initiative, initiating, I don't know why I can't speak today. Um, (laughs) Food poisoning being a, um, an event that could happen that could set the stage for this. So are there any other things that you want to mention in terms of causes of, of SIBO? Oh, you know, well, one interesting one, um, is I think traumatic brain injury and spinal injury that's in the motility column, just anything that damages the vagus nerve, which is kind of Mm -hmm. the super highway between our brain and our gut. And that's what happens when we have a brain injury. And um, I had a really interesting conversation on my podcast, all about this, about how, you know, traumatic brain injury or any sort of, you know, just bumping your head or headbutting a soccer ball is kind of the beginning of a disease process. It's not just like an isolated incident. And part of that disease process is that lapse in communication that allows, you know, or prevents our digestive system from just seamlessly slipping into rest and digest mode. Um, And I think it's an interesting example because, I mean, it's pretty hard to like not be someone who's just like so not accident prone that you've had like no incidences in your life of like slipping on ice or like getting in a fender bender or again like headbutting a soccer ball or falling off a horse like you know we've got up to some stuff when we were younger and I think these accidents are really interesting because They've got kind of potentially feet in every single bucket. You know, you Mm -hmm. have the issue with motility from from the vagus nerve damage. Then, you know, you could have a structural issue just in the way your body heals alignment wise. It could just not be right. And then, you know, a lot of people just get put on medications like opioids, painkillers, even just NSAIDs or antibiotics. Um, And those are all things that can also limit motility. So it's kind of this like perfect cocktail. And then, you know, stress, we didn't even mention stress, but stress can both lower your stomach acid and limit your motility too. So it's, um, I'm not surprised that your catalyst was stress. My catalyst was certainly stress, but again, with, you know, the, the additional layer of already probably having being prone to low stomach acid and, uh, you know, slow migrating motor complex and whatnot. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought up the traumatic brain injury. If you, um, if that sounds like you, anyone who's listening, you can go, to episode 32 of the She Talks Health podcast. We talked with Allison Jordan about this, how physical injury affects your gut health. And also, of course, please check out um, Phoebe's um, uh, episode on that as well, because it's probably its own separate (laughs) entity in some ways. Um, And also the stress thing is really interesting. And I don't know, I know you're not like a, you're not in Um, the practitioner mindset. But as a practitioner, one of the things I find fascinating about myself and about my clients is how much we we resist that. Like Mm. people will take all of the supplements for their gut health and spend all the money on probiotics, but they don't want to deal with the mental emotional stress. And that is, I will tell you, if my clients refuse to deal with that, that they will not have a successful recovery from their gut health issues, regardless of it's SIBO or another quote diagnosis. So I'm really glad you brought up the stress as well. It's huge. Yeah. I mean, it's also like, there are so many modalities for, for healing SIBO. I won't say that. I think that's very different than treating SIBO. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of people kind of go on these merry-go-rounds of, you know, antibiotics or antimicrobials to like as part of their kill phase, which is often necessary, but then there's a lot of damage that needs to be healed off the back end of that. And often more damage that results as, you know, over the course of treatment, since it's, it's pretty intense. Um, But I think, you know, 
the mental side of things can be such an important in. And, you know, some people are able to heal their IBS just with doing hypnotherapy. And that's something that should be interesting because they say that upwards of 60%, probably more like 80% of all IBS diagnoses are actually being caused by SIBO. Um, And I I don't know, I just think mentally we have a lot of power to move the needle. Um, And then also it's just could be like the one thing that's holding us back, even after doing everything else right, like you mentioned. It certainly was for me. And I might take just a a quick pause here to explain that a little bit deeper um, because I'm pretty open and honest about my own experience for people so that they can learn. You know, I was dealing with this SIBO diagnosis, right? And I had just started my health coaching practice. This is before I was at FDN. I was um, just doing kind of general health coaching. And I... I was told I had to take rifaximin, which I'm sure we'll talk about. It's, it's an antibiotic for um, for SIBO. Um, I tried to do it through my insurance. It was over $1,000. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, no, <laughs> I'm not doing it. I just said no. And um, But I was scared to do that because I was afraid of what could happen. And I realized that I was basically operating my entire life out of fear. I mean, there were days where I would be just paralyzed by fear. And what actually ended up happening was I had had a family vacation scheduled in British Columbia. And I took that time to actually relax and actually enjoy nature and actually be with my partner and actually kind of decompress and think about what I wanted to do. And when I got back from that trip, I realized how much better my gut had been on that trip because I had just calmed down. And so for me, what ended up working most was dealing with my mental emotional stress um, through various mechanisms and taking some smart supplements on that and some smart food decisions. Mm -hmm. But like low fat FODMAP didn't work for me. I didn't even want to try the antibiotic. And honestly, it was mostly stress induced for me. Um, so, I mean, and I also have like a lot of the other risk factors. It's just that I had already dealt with some of them the first yeah. round. Yeah. Um, so it is really, truly a potential cause is the stress. And I want people to really hear that so that they'll take it seriously. For sure. And I, I know that had to have been my catalyzing event because I've had plenty of food poisoning in my lifetime. Oh, so many cases, but that particular year, like I had, I don't think I had any cases. Like it was definitely like stress was <laughs> the catalyst. And I had a lot of stress coming out with the book. <laughs> yeah. I can only imagine <laughs> coming out with the book. So, okay. So we talked about some amazing ways people can think about how, how is this happening to me or how could this happen um, in my life? Um, and what about what what do we do if we've been diagnosed with SIBO or we think we might have SIBO? Like, what does someone do? There are so many options out there. Like you mentioned, um, you worked with a practitioner who knew exactly what to tell you to do. Um, I did not, um, or I did, but it didn't. The those set of tools did not work for me. Yeah. So, if someone was like brand new to this, where would you tell them to start? I mean, not to toot my own horn, but that's kind of why I wrote the book was just to put all of the information in one place and let you choose your own adventure. I mean, I probably would have sold more copies by now had I had like, you know, a 21 day plan. But the reality is, and any practitioner will tell you, like, you really need a diverse toolkit for SIBO. Like what works for one person will not work for the other person. And it's because, you know, our, our microbiomes are more unique than a fingerprint. Um, that would be true no matter where the bacteria is growing. So we don't know what's there. We don't know what it'll respond to. Um, but kind of the three main buckets of treatment are uh, antibiotics like rifaximin, like the one you mentioned, um, herbal antibiotics microbials. So just either individual herbs or um, there are certain kind of compound herbs that um, some brands sell. Um, I did one of those. And then there's something called the elemental diet, which is not a diet at all. It's like a medical shake. And that is kind of the only proven starvation technique. So you basically drink all of your nutrients in their most elemental form, and they're able to absorb so quickly in the intestinal tract that the bacteria wouldn't ever have an opportunity to eat them. So you're literally starving them because they have absolutely no food resources. A big misconception is that something like the low FODMAP diet or a low carb diet or a combination of the two would have that same efficacy. But in reality, like if you're eating food 
like you're going to be feeding some bacteria. <laughs> like it, 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 these are just their favorite foods you're taking away, but they'll, they'll eat something and they may not release as much gas. So you may not be as miserable, but it's not like going to be helping your, your treatment. It might be helping your healing. It's not going to help your treatment. Oh, I'm so glad you just said that about the low FODMAP diet, because I think people hone so far down into oh. that as it's only, and it's so hard to follow. I mean, I tried it for like a week and I was like, this is not, I'm not doing this. <laughs> I just yeah. was like, no. <laughs> and it's not, it's like you said, it's not the full picture. And like, and like you also said, and this is like something that I see so much in the, re I'm so glad you brought this up because I feel like the research um, and the opinions, I should say, are so confusing because some people will say if you just eat low FODMAP, then you're starving the bacteria. But yeah. like you said, if you're eating food, the bacteria will find something to eat. Yes. So, I mean, I'd say I do these like Q and A's every week on my Instagram and like half of the questions now are like, can I eat X when I have SIBO? Can I eat Y on SIBO treatment? And I'm like, um, literally you can eat whatever you want. Like, yep. I mean, it, you may be miserable, but there's not a single data-backed diet for SIBO. Low FODMAP diet is data-backed for IBS. But, you know, again, if SIBO is the root cause, like it's not necessarily eradicating the SIBO. It's just controlling your symptoms. Um, and I'd say, yeah, like the more where diet really, I think, plays a more important role is kind of after treatment for healing. Um, it's a healing tool and a symptom control tool, not a treatment tool. I agree with you. And I think the idea of putting someone on a low FODMAP diet or deciding to go on it can be such a stressful event for somebody that it actually can inhibit more SIBO effects. Because yeah. if you think about it, if all you did was change the food that you're eating, but you're still working a super high stress job or you have a, you know, you have low stomach acid or you know, all these other things going on, then you're probably still going to have a problem, yet you're now just restricting your diet, which is stressful. So <laughs> yeah, and really bad for your overall gut health. And, um, and really bad for your overall gut health. That's the trickiest part with SIBO, I feel yeah. like. Is, yeah. It is really hard because it's like, again, you're kind of doing the opposite of what most people tell you to do for good gut health because you're trying to eradicate, you know, a specific acute issue. Um, but then it becomes, I think, for many people, a really difficult place to bridge, like to get from point A to point B, to go from, you know, this one acute issue to then living with like your whole gut in mind um, and potentially, you know, having a lot of dysfunction and damage in between. And that's a slow road for a lot of people. It was a really slow road for me. I did layer on the low FODMAP diet to my treatment kind of like halfway through. And, you know, it did help me control the symptoms because like the herbs are pretty intense for me. Um, but then, you know, coming off of it is difficult. You have to be brave. You have to, you know, have some strong mental practices so that, you know, you're not causing a self-fulfilling prophecy when you were introduced. Um, and yeah, like I would say that it took me like a full year to really feel like I was eating anything I wanted uh, without incident and without fear. Mm, yeah, I think it's interesting now as being a practitioner who deals with gut health and hormones and mood. And I find that if my client's mood isn't stabilized, then it doesn't really matter. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> and and so like, it's interesting because even if I, I kind of, and this is just me personally, because I don't diagnose or treat anything specifically as an FDN, I don't, I don't actually, I have the capacity to run a SIBO breath test, but I actually never do. Mm. I actually don't do that because I feel like it just triggers more anxiety yeah. um, for a lot of people. Now, if they did um, the herbals and they worked on their stress and they worked on all these different, you know, um, things we've just talked about and they're still having trouble, then I would probably jump to that next level. But so often I think we um, – uh, I think we can stress people out. I've just seen it over yeah. and over again, so I stopped doing it. Um, but there are some proven things. I know that they're not the highest efficacy. I think what herbals and antibiotics are 40% efficacy, but elementals like 80%. Is that right? Yeah, it's higher for the for the um for the herbs and the antibiotics, but um okay. the elemental can reduce your gases by um a greater percentage. Actually, you're you're close with the numbers. It's like Antibiotics and herbs can limit your gases by like 30 parts per million on average each course, and the elemental diet can do 80, 
or 70 yeah. or 80. So, you know, if you're someone, the, the one benefit of the test, well, there are several benefits, but the benefits of the test is knowing exactly what's going on and knowing kind of how many rounds of treatment you might need um, versus just shooting in the dark. But, um, and that may affect, you know, what you want to do. Um, Cause the elemental diet sounds miserable to me and I would probably never do it. But if I had like nine, if my gas were at 90, I'd be like, maybe two weeks is not the worst thing in the world to just like nip this in the bud. Right. I mean, that that's the big thing, right? It's like, do you do a couple months or however that your practitioner wants to do it of um, herbal antimicrobials or in several rounds of yeah. it? Or do you do like two weeks of an elemental diet? So um, walk us through. Um, so there's, those are the three. Um, do you have any advice or thoughts on why someone might choose like antibiotics versus herbs versus elemental in terms of, of where to start? Because I think people might be like, I don't even know, like, what are the pros and cons of each? Or how do I decide this? Yeah, there's a really handy chart in my book um, with kind of all of this information laid out. And also, um, I, I mean, I really think it comes down to lifestyle preferences. Like, again, a lot of people can't afford rifaximin. You know, mm -hmm. if insurance doesn't cover it or it doesn't cover a lot of it, it's really expensive. And like to think that you have to do several rounds like that, it may be prohibitive in and of itself. Um, some people just want to do something that is quote unquote more natural, even though, you know, <laughs> it's like just as broad spectrum in some ways. Um, yeah. So maybe you do the herbs. Um, also, like maybe you can't afford to work with a practitioner, in which case like the herbs are over the counter, as is the elemental diet. Um, you know, it, it's kind of it really depends on what works for you. And then I'd say you kind of have to see like after one round of treatment, what actually is resonated and be willing to try something else, like to be willing to rotate to a different, a different modality. How would someone know if something worked for them? So say they decided, say their insurance covered Rifaxman and they decided to do it. Um, where would they go from there? Like if they were like, wow, I really don't have so much bloating anymore and I'm not so constipated. Do they just like go back to regular life or yeah. what's their next step? I mean, most people retest again to like know exactly what's going on. Um, but like obviously symptom <laughs> reduction is the end goal. If you're like, you're feeling 80% better after treatment, like, yeah, maybe you just keep going from there and layer on some, some healing strategies, some lifestyle strategies. And then ultimately, I mean, the most important part of treatment is just identifying those root causes in the first place and attempting to overcome them if they can be overcome, because otherwise, um, that's, makes it more likely that SIBO could be chronic, or you yeah. could just like relapse immediately after treatment if you don't, you know, fix that root cause. Um, a lot of people with the food poisoning issue um, have this like antibody that's essentially kind of circulating and causing, you know, repeat damage to the migrating motor complex. So knowing that, you know, that's a root cause for you, you know, means you pro should probably take something that's going to stimulate the migrating motor complex, be it like a prescription or, uh, or a natural option. It's a, something called a prokinetic is what is what sparks that migrating motor complex. I've used um, Motil Pro before yeah, as yeah. a migrant. Yeah, that one's huge. And I think the other one that I think people miss so often, going back all the way to the kind of the beginning where you were talking about the different causes um, is like the enzymes and stomach acid mm -hmm. and like uh, going back uh, even to, to connect that to stress, we know that stress can lower yeah. our stomach acid, our enzymes. Like if you think about how digestive process works, we actually have to be in rest and digest for all of our body systems to work. So one of the things that I try to like really drill in with my clients is like, yes, do you maybe need herbs or antibiotics or whatever you decide to do? Yes. But like you said, what's the gut health maintenance roadmap? And one of the biggest things I think is to slow down and chew your food. Totally. Um, when, when you, yeah, <laughs> when you eat, right. So that we can actually absorb our nutrients and hopefully they don't get stuck along the way. Yeah. I mean, I think 
how you're eating is so much more important than what you're eating. Because again, if you think about SIBO, it's really a mechanical issue. There's something going wrong in the mechanics of your digestive system, um, or you're not honoring your body in the way that it's meant to function. Um, I think snacking is a huge one too, um, because the migrating motor complex only kicks in during a fasting state of 90 minutes or more. So if you are eating like, you know, a carrot stick every 15 minutes, even though there's nothing wrong with carrot sticks, very healthy choice. Um, you're still preventing your system from kicking into gear and sweeping the decks in between meals. Um, I know fasting is really trendy right now. I don't, I'm not a big fasting advocate. I'm a big meal spacer. So, you know, just eat three balanced meals a day and like, don't snack in between. Like, People were not like snacking in the bush, like when humans were, <laughs> how humans are dying to function. Yeah. I always say if like your meal can't last you four hours, then we have to shift the meal. Exactly. Um, yeah. I know there was like a lot of people talking at certain points. So, like some people are metabolized differently. Some people need lots of small meals. And like, I just still mm-hmm. to this day call bullshit on that. Yeah. I'm like, that no. doesn't make, I mean, to me, that doesn't make any it sense. It doesn't make any sense. Because <laughs> of what you just said, yeah. that and blood sugar. Every single time you put something yeah. in your mouth, you're, you're stimulating insulin <laughs> and people wonder why they can't gain, you know, can't lose weight. And it's like, well, they're insulin resistant because they're constantly eating. So, um, and I mean, also I think there's something to be said for listening to your body. Like today I did not do a good job of doing the three meals and I don't feel as good. My gut doesn't feel as good. Um, and I'm, cause I know because it's, it's trying to work this whole time. So Awesome. Well, we covered a lot. We covered what is SIBO, what are the causes, what are some things people can try to do to get rid of it, and also what can they do afterwards um, a little bit. Is there anything else that you really want to dive into in the topic of SIBO or any last um, words of advice for women who are listening? Yeah, I would say just like don't get too bogged down with the diet piece. That said, you know, my book is 300 pages and half of it are recipes because I know a lot of people do seek diet as a way to, you know, limit symptoms and to heal. And of course, you're healing an organ that is like directly related to the food you're eating. So of course, food plays a role. Um, But I do think that, you know, your, your mental outlook will be healthier if you don't focus too, too heavily on that as like the only means to, to overcome your SIBO. Oh, here, here. Thank you so much, Phoebe. I, I really agree with that. And I'm glad we're on the same page about SIBO. Um, okay. So your business is Feed Me Phoebe. Your book and your podcast are both SIBO made simple, correct? Yes, that's right. And is that the best way for them to find you is just feedmephoebe.com or yeah. on Instagram? And yeah, I'm always on Instagram, just my name, Phoebe Lapine, at Phoebe Lapine. And yeah, talking about SIBO and Hashi stuff. And yeah, lots of free resources on feedmephoebe.com if you want to just, you know, take a little, a little perusal. Great. And we'll definitely drop those links in the show notes so that people can easily find them. Thank you so much for spending 53 minutes with me today, Phoebe. It's been awesome. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. And ladies, this is Sophie Shepard, founder of She Talks Health. And I hope you loved this episode. We will be back in two weeks with the next episode. Stay tuned until then. And you can find me on shetalkshealth.com or at shetalkshealth on Instagram. Talk to you later. I hope this episode got you one step closer to achieving your optimal health. If you liked this episode, please spend a few seconds to rate it so more women can find this resource. Be sure to tune in for more women's health support next week on the She Talks Health podcast. And in the meantime, you can find me on Instagram or Facebook at She Talks Health. I have an open door DM policy. No question is stupid and I'm always here for you. 